Welcome to Africa Investigates. I'm your host, Chris Roper, a senior Knight Fellow with the International Center for Journalists and Code for Africa. And now this. If Fashola comes again and it comes to destroy things like this, how do the family live? Since 2004, World Bank finance projects have physically or economically displaced an estimated 3.4 million people, forcing them from their homes, taking some or all of their land and damaging their livelihoods. This past year, a team of 50 reporters working with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists with assistance from the African Network of Centers for Investigative Reporting, or ANSA, and the Huffington Post, explored how the World Bank continually fails to protect those it seeks to help. The reporters compiled case studies from 14 countries, ranging from Albania to Brazil to Nigeria. Many of these case studies illustrate how the World Bank and its private sector lending arm, the International Finance Corporation, have funded governments and companies that push aside low-income residents living in the path of development projects, often violating their human rights. From 2009 to 2013, World Bank Group lenders pumped some $50 billion into projects carrying the highest risk of irreversible social or environmental damage. Some of these projects led to forced evictions of residents, a direct contradiction to the World Bank's quote-unquote safeguard policies, designed to ensure a more humane manner of development. One of the most troubling cases took place in the Badia East slum of Lagos, Nigeria. In February of 2013, while receiving financing from the World Bank, Lagos authorities flattened the slum in a single day. Police evicted the neighborhood's poor residents without warning and beat individuals who got in their way. Badia East resident Bimbo Omawali Osobi briefly lost track of her children in the chaos. When she returned to the community hours later, her concrete block home and two small shops were gone. It's like when a woman goes into labor and the baby comes out dead, she said. That's how it felt to me. Authorities leveled the area as part of an urban renewal project, but thousands of people from the community that they were supposed to be helping were left homeless and abandoned. When several inhabitants from Badia East filed a complaint, they were directed to government officials for negotiations. Labeling residents as illegal squatters, Lagos authorities offered them two options. Accept a small payment and sign away any legal rights, or get nothing. Today on our podcast, we're privileged to have Sasha Chavkin of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, ICIJ's lead reporter on the evicted and abandoned investigation. He's joined by Musikila Majid of Premium Times, who reported on evicted and abandoned in Lagos, Nigeria. Our final guest is Cecile Shilis Galigo of ICIJ, who oversaw the data collection alongside members of the African Network of Centers for Investigative Reporting, or ANSA. What patterns did you see in studying the World Bank developing projects around the world? Did you notice any differences or similarities in the situations in Latin America and in Africa? We found that communities around the world were complaining that they were being wrongly and sometimes violently evicted by projects that were funded by the World Bank. 
in many of those cases, they weren't being properly compensated for land or income that they lost, even though the World Bank's policy says that people have to be resettled if they lose their home and get their livelihoods restored. Uh, we saw cases of resettlement that went wrong in Latin America, uh, but most frequently in Africa and in Asia, uh, often involving indigenous groups or other marginalized minorities uh, that suffered the consequences. Can you comment on how those displaced people coped with violent eviction programs? How did they respond? A lot of the time we found out about the evictions because the communities filed complaints to the World Bank's ombudsman. Uh, community members would work with NGOs, uh, sometimes international groups like Oxfam or Amnesty International, to file formal complaints to the bank saying that it was breaking its own rules by wrongly evicting them or failing to compensate them properly. Uh, so though it was usually very poor uh, or politically powerless people who were displaced, they fought very hard against losing what they had uh, and often had support from advocacy groups. The official World Bank Charter forbids it from getting involved in politics. Can you describe how the World Bank's social safeguard policies fell short of protecting those most vulnerable? The World Bank's policy on resettlement says that if you're a government that borrows from the World, from the World Bank and your project physically or economically displaces people, that you have to resettle people who lose their home and restore the livelihoods and living conditions of people who lose land or income. Uh, what we found by reporting on the ground uh, and through an extensive analysis of data from the bank is that the World Bank regularly failed to keep this promise. Uh, sometimes they failed to count or create detailed resettlement plans of people who are displaced by their projects, and they often failed to keep track of what happened to people after they were, after they were displaced. Uh, and these aren't just findings of our report. Uh, the president of the World Bank, Jim Young Kim, admitted uh, to these shortcomings soon after we sent questions to the bank that outlined our findings. What motivated the local governments to abuse World Bank funds? Well, resettlement is expensive and time-consuming, and it takes a lot of effort. If you're a cash-strapped government in a poor country and you want a dam or a road or a power plant, it's really tempting to take shortcuts so you don't have to spend lots of time and money resettling people who live in the way. Uh, in the Lagos case, uh, which Musakilu will talk about more soon, the Lagos government openly has a policy against compensating people when it clears slums because it says that they're illegal squatters and it doesn't want to incentivize them to build slums without permission. What's the World Bank cooperative with your investigation? That's an interesting question. Uh, we did work closely with the World Bank for several months uh, to make sure we were understanding their data correctly uh, and to get their perspective on what was happening with their resettlement policy. Uh, but then when we published our story, they went to our partner publications and they challenged our findings and our methods uh, and so on. Uh, it, it turned out that even as they were attacking our finding that 3.4 million people had been physically or economically displaced over a decade, they had an internal report from three years before that had reached a nearly identical conclusion. Uh, so we're, we're very confident in our findings and the World Bank has never actually come to us and challenged any of the facts in our reporting.
looking forward, what is the most important thing we can take away from the investigation? I think the big picture of the investigation is that ensuring humane resettlement practices and respect for human rights in development projects is very much in question now. Uh, even with all the flaws in its practices, the World Bank's policy has been the gold standard for resettlement, and its standards are often followed by regional development banks uh, and even some firms in the private sector. Right now, there's a possibility that the World Bank could retreat altogether from some of its standards for resettlement and other safeguards because it fears that it's becoming less competitive uh, compared to China's new development bank and the BRICS bank and other new players in the development field. You describe in your article how the World Bank has been shifting focus towards mega projects such as dams and oil pipelines. Could you discuss in more depth the motivations and the potential consequences of this shift? Uh, I think the reason for the shift uh, is quite simple, uh, which is that there's very high demand for infrastructure in poor countries. Um, though the bank has admitted failures in its resettlement policies, they've also been adamant that in order to help poor countries develop, they're going to need to fund more and more big infrastructure projects. Now, we're not arguing about the importance or merits of infrastructure, uh, but what this does mean is that World Bank projects are on track to displace even more people uh, in the future uh, and in the decades to come. So unless the World Bank is willing and able to be serious about enforcing their resettlement policies, that's going to have huge humanitarian consequences for millions of people during the coming years. Mr. Kito, can you describe in greater depth what happened in the Near East? Why was the Near East selected as the urban renewal zone project? Well, I wasn't there uh, when it happened. But witnesses uh, recall how bulldozers, accompanied by fully armed police officers, stormed the community around 7 that Saturday, February 23, 2013. They spoke of how residents were given just 20 minutes to pack their belongings before the demolition started. Some people, According to one of the affected residents, John Momo, were able to pack some of their things. Others were not so lucky. Their stuffs were destroyed along with the demolished uh, buildings. Now, once the demolition started, residents were not allowed to go near what were their homes for years. At the end of the exercise, about 9,000 people were rendered homeless, according to Amnesty International. As bulldozers and backhoes pulled apart wooden homes erected on swampy grounds in the slum. 48 hours after the demolition, Felix Mocha, a human rights lawyer, led hundreds of the community people in a peaceful protest march in front of the governor's office in Lagos. Um, so regarding the second part of your question, it is right. not clear why Badia was chosen uh, as part of the urban renewal zone project. 
But eight other slots were also selected for the 200 million US dollars World Bank Credit Facility project implemented by the Lagos Metropolitan Development and Governance Project. The project was designed to provide essential services and infrastructure in slum communities in Lagos. Now, I, I need to make this clear. The Lagos government has maintained that the demolition was not related to the World Bank project. The government said the Badia residents were illegal occupants who were simply made to vacate government land. So basically, that, that's what happened in, um, you know, in short. That was what happened on February. 23 that Badia residents were illegal residents who must be made to vacate the land in uh, enforcement of the Lagos environmental law. Now, it, however, appeared to a lot of activists that the major motivation is for the government to take the land from the residents to develop a housing project on it because the site is now being used to build housing estates as part of the Lagos State Home Owners Mortgage Scheme. What is the Lagos State Government's history when it comes to carrying slums? Is the risk of violent eviction something that the World Bank should have been aware of? Well, most of the residents have moved on to find homes in other slums or locations around and outside Lagos. You know, some have moved in with relatives. A few, I'm told, remain homeless. For several months, arguments and counter-arguments lingered between the community and the Lagos state government over whether the residents were eligible for compensation or government-assisted relocation. Why the community's lawyer argued that uh, Badia residents should be compensated. The government insisted they were illegal occupants of its land who did not deserve any assistance. The government maintained that the demolition was not related to the World Bank project. But after a series of meetings between the Badia community representatives and a technical committee of the Labour State Government, a resettlement action plan that included the composition package was reached for those affected by the demolition. Now, the figures paid to the objectives were arrived at after a unilateral decision by the Lagos State Government to review downwards an initial figure agreed by both parties. Um, I want to take the details of the package in the resettlement action plan. It included 9,400 naira for tenants. Every tenant got that. Now, uh, 171,725 naira 
for those with small structure. That is between those between one and four bedroom structures. Now, those with between five to eight rooms got 248,740 naira. Those who have larger homes like eight rooms and above got like 309,780 naira. The World Bank monitored and approved the resettlement action plan. Despite its falling short of international human rights standards and the bank's resettlement policy. Now almost all the affected residents have now been paid. How those are interviewed in the course of the investigation lamented that the money paid to them was major and would do little to provide succor. Now, but they agreed to accept the compensation because they ran out of patience after waiting for almost a year. Um, normally, we are supposed, and one resident told me, normally we are supposed to reject that, but because our people are dying and we cannot cope anymore, we accepted it. That's uh, Albert Olorowa, a community representative. That, that was what they told me. So basically, as I said earlier, the guys, uh, a few of them have moved on. They've taken the people that was paid to them as compensation, and uh, a few of them are still homeless. Did you find the World Bank's data on the impact of the restriction plans clear and easily accessible? So first of all, I want to say, contrary to some organizations, at least there is some kind of information. Um, they make, uh, the World Bank makes some documents, the resettlement plan data there. Um, the problem is that information um, is not very well structured. So there is information that is structured and it's often the cost of a project or the dates of the projects and things like that. Um, what I would call the metadata of the project. Then to find information about any type of impact, not just a uh, resettlement issue, you have to um, dig into the documents. So that means going through hundreds and hundreds of, um, of PDFs and, and pages and trying to find the little piece of information you're looking for. Um, so there was, to make it simple, there was information, but it was difficult uh, to find it. Uh, they would list the, the negative impacts uh, on local population uh, at some point in the document, not always in the same level of detail, so it varies a lot from one project to another, which makes, made it very difficult for it to create a, an interactive a database. Um, but, but yes, there was some information. It took 10 months to gather it, <laughs> so that was the, the main problem. Can you talk a little bit about the, about the database that you created? When we started the investigation and started working on the data, we realized that there was not a place where you could see everything about resettlement issues. It was uh, drowned in the mess of um, World Bank projects. Uh, the impacts were not tracked in a systematic way, and so that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to create a resource um, 
that would acknowledge for this project and try to gather everything that we could on those pro could find on this project. Um, if you go to the interactive online, uh, you'll see that you can search projects by country or by sectors, um, and then you can go to individual projects and you can find information on them. We also included complaints received by the by the inspection panel, which is the the part of the bank that receives complaints. So we really try to create a resource that other people could use after and try to acknowledge that there was an issue of resettlement, like there were resettlement issues with some of those projects, and it was like a thing in itself that was worth looking at, and it was worth having all that information there for anyone who wanted to, to explore that. What time period did you study? So we looked at 2004 to 2013, so we wanted a decade. This was the one for which we had most of the data. Before that, the data is quite is more limited. We're missing projects, and the bank also takes time um, before plotting, uploading sorry documents online. So we didn't want to be too close to publication. It can take up to six months, so then the data is very incomplete. So we try to pick the decade for which we would have the best information, and this was 2004 to 2013. How did you organize all of your data after having sifted through 4,000 files and 1,500 projects? The idea was to, to take all those PDFs and turn them into an Excel spreadsheet to be able to really look systematically at the impacts of the, of the projects. Um, they didn't really have a structure at all. Uh, if you look, if one day, for some reason, you want to look at World Bank Resettlement Action Plans. You, you can take a look at them. They have not really a structure. I, I think they're supposed to, but it's 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 not very strict. So the information sometimes will be in the table, sometimes will be buried in some paragraph. Uh, it's all very messy, uh, and we had to to double and triple check everything. It took that, it, it really took ten months to to do that. Uh, to go through all of those projects, but um, in the end, uh, we put the data, the raw data, um, we made it available um, and downloadable from the interactive, and that's basically what we obtained, which was a spreadsheet where we have each project on one line, and you can easily see what type of document was last posted, what type of document was produced by the time of approval, and the number of people displaced. So this is, I think, the most comprehensive the most comprehensive data that's available right now on, on resettlement impacts uh, of World Bank Project, if not the only one. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it took a lot of time. It's 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 not very well structured, and um, I think it also speaks uh, to how important it is for the bank to get that information. I mean, if you're not tracking it very meticulously, how can you be sure that you've resettled everyone, and how can you be sure that you're um, doing a, a good job of monitoring those impacts. What exactly is a project-affected person or PAP? So a project-affected person is really like all World Bank jargon. So it, it, it basically means someone who lost their house or their job or had their resources diminished by a World Bank project. I think it's a very difficult notion. Uh, to, it's a very difficult not concept, but it, for people who read stories, it's it's difficult to understand what it recovers. It's basically anyone who was negatively affected by a project, and it's uh, very broad. Um, it covers 
everything from losing a tree to having to relocate your entire family. Um, I, I was explaining earlier, and unfortunately we try to, to go deeper than this, and it's very difficult because not all, every document lists the type of impact or the severity of impact, and they all list it in a very different way. So some will say exactly how much land people lost, and some will say a percentage. Some um, some will say it's a severe impact or a minor impact, but won't explain what they mean by minor or severe. So we didn't want to make any assumption, and we we decided to stick with this very broad category. Um, but this is basically how the world bank refers to anyone who's negatively affected by the project and who will need to be compensated by the bank. What are the key data takeaways from your investigation? I think the main takeaway is that the information, like how difficult the information was to, to gather is the main it's the main takeaway for me. Um, I don't think the data is very well gathered by the bank itself. Um, I know our data isn't, isn't perfect, but I think the data the World Bank has is imperfect too. I don't think they quite know themselves um, what are the impacts on the ground. Um, and the, they were telling us it would take forever to um, to, to gather that data. It's, it's impossible. Um, it's it's impossible to count the number of people. It covers too many different things. And for me, I don't think it's impossible. I think it's just like a matter of how much how many how much resources you want to put in it. Um, and I think the fact that it's it's still not reported in a systematic way and it's not easily accessible like speaks to to how important it is for the bank to carefully track that information. Um, and so hopefully I think what we did contributed to make that a little bit clearer. And I really hope this encouraged the bank to also put more resources in tracking um, resettlement impacts, but we'll have to see because that project take a, a really long time. So if they make any changes in how they report and how carefully they track, it'll, it'll take a while before we we know it. Sasha Chavkin is an investigative reporter for ICIJ and ICIJ's lead reporter on the evicted and abandoned investigation. He is an award-winning reporter who has also written for ProPublica, Columbia Journalism Review and The New York World. Musakila Majid is an investigative journalist and managing editor at Nigeria's multimedia newspaper Premium Times. He recently received a Knight Journalism Fellowship at Stanford University and is known for exposing government corruption in Nigeria. Cecile Shilis Gallego is a data journalist and researcher for ICIJ. She's a 2014-2015 Brown Institute Magic Grantee working on corporate transparency. Thank you to ICIJ and the Huffington Post, along with our three guests, Sasha, Musikilo, and Cecile, for joining us today and shedding light on this complex investigation. This Answer podcast was funded by Open Society West Africa, co-produced by the World Policy Institute, and engineered by Matthew DeMello. Tune in next time for a look at how selectively applied safety standards at African mines run by Australian mining companies are linked to the deaths of over 380 people. Mm-hmm.